optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I ask you a personal question? Now it is seen at perfect time. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. (sighs) Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Was gibt Neues, my cute little darlings? This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where each episode it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers from many different worlds, whether they come from military, entertainment, sports, or otherwise, to dissect and collect the patterns for you that you can use, to tease out the routines, habits, thought processes, etc., that you can apply immediately and test in your own life. And this episode is a really fun one. Ever since episode two of the podcast, we're probably around 140 or 150 now, you've been asking for a round two, a follow-up with Josh Waitzkin, and this is it. Josh Waitzkin was the basis for the book and movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. He is considered a chess prodigy, although we'll discuss why that term doesn't necessarily apply to him, because he has perfected learning strategies that can be applied to anything, including his loves of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's a black belt under the phenom, nine-time world champion Marcelo Garcia, or Tai Chi push hands. He's a world champion. These days, he spends his time coaching the world's top performers, whether Mark Messier, Cal Ripken Jr., or investors whose names you'd recognize or whose assets under management would blow your mind. And uh, 
as context, I initially met Josh through his incredible book, The Art of Learning, which I love so much that I helped produce the audiobook. You can find that as part of my book club, audible.com forward slash Tim's Books. And this episode is deep. Josh is always deep, and he walks the talk in the best way possible. I hope it will blow your mind. We talk about flow, achieving flow states, near-death experiences, use of slackline, training elite performers, cultivating sensitivity, and I don't mean that in the the uh, the most woo-woo way imaginable, but rather the most practical way imaginable, using heart rate variability training, high-intensity interval training, breath awareness, etc. Uh, intuition and its applications to investing, and it just goes on and on and on. So please enjoy my conversation with Josh Waitzkin. Joshua. Yes, Timbo. Welcome back, buddy. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled you're here, man. Hanging with you. And I thought we could maybe start just with a complete non sequitur, which is a book you just mentioned to me that I know nothing about, which is Dreaming Yourself Awake. Can you talk about this? Oh, I didn't think we were going to begin here. It, it, it's a book that I, I explored a couple years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, I started studying um, Tibetan dream yoga and lucid dreaming. Not deeply, but exploring. Um, and this was during the period where I was first getting involved with my study of East Asian philosophy. Um, and then a dear friend of mine r- recommended this book. Um, it's actually funny because it was a, it was a, we kind of made a mistake together. I recommended another book that he texted back confirming that it was the name. He texted me back that name that I didn't intend, but then I picked up and read and it was extraordinary. It's just a phenomenal discussion. Um, very systematic discussion of the art of lucid dreaming. Um, in this way that fuses East Asian um, philosophy with Western science. Um, and really, you were competing then at the time, or were you not competing? You were, you were in the midst of competition? Two years ago, you mean? Oh, was, oh this was two years yeah, ago. Yeah, this was two oh, years ago. I, I thought you said book. 20 years ago. 20 Sorry. years ago was when I started studying East Asian yeah, philosophy. I got it. Right. I was competing in chess then and then into the martial arts. Yeah. I need a little more caffeine. <laughs> Working on it. You've had a rough night. And I wanted to thank you. I'm just, this is like Tim's stream of consciousness podcast intro. The, we're looking at a slack line. This is an indoor Gibbon classic slack. It's about 12, uh, no, not even 10 feet long. Maybe we have, it's, it's surrounded by kettlebells and indoor board and a triceratops, <laughs> which I don't think is yours. Got the Bosu ball there and the Bosu ball. And that, I want to thank you for actually getting me to bite the bullet and grab a slackline, which I set up on Long Island. Yeah, absolutely. I've loved, I've had some fun on, on your slackline on Long Island, too. <laughs> yeah. I love, right now, I'm, I'm in the period, you know, this, I kind of oscillate between these, and my son, Jack, who's four and a half, we have a great time. I'm on the indoor board, rocking it, he's on the BOSU ball, we're having a catch back and forth while on these things. We're always integrating these interesting kinds of um, physiological awareness training. Speaking of which, I yeah. feel like maybe we should throw a cautionary tale into this follow-up podcast. So we, we obviously trade stories and findings all the time. Would you like to talk about your recent experience with Wim Hof and breathing training? Wow. Yeah. Well, I had an extremely scary experience. Um, so I'm a lifetime meditator and kind of experimental subject like yourself around all these things uh when you, you tend you tend to have better self-preservation instead. i tend to although i've had a lot of close calls in life well I'm, i had a I, I when i heard you speak to um whim 
I was extremely intrigued. Actually, when I heard someone mention Wim to you on your podcast, and then we spoke about it, and then you spoke to Wim, I thought he sounded like a fascinating guy. I started digging into his work. I, um, so powerful. And I started doing, he's going through his course, his online course. I loved it. I mean, the energetic feeling, um, the electric surging through the body. Uh, I'm also a lifetime freediver. Since I was four or five years old, I've been freediving. And so, breath hold. And just to put that in perspective, I mean, you spend about a month a year. Yeah. In the water. Used to be, uh, used to be three months when I was younger. Um, now it's about, well, yeah, free dive, yeah, diving usually about a month of the year, but I spend a lot of time now, as we know, you know, surfing, stand up paddle surfing, um, swimming, diving. I mean, the ocean's a huge part of my life. We got to talk about our stand up paddle adventures together, which are pretty hilarious. We'll definitely come to that. Timbo and I have been having some fun with that. Um, but I started playing with the Wim Hof method and I thought it was incredibly powerful. The, the intensity, um, that you're experiencing internally. It's very similar to training in Tai Chi, Tai Chi Chuan, moving meditation for 10, 15, 20 years, and then being an hour long into a session. And you have this feeling of energetic flow inside your body. With the Wim Hof, you, you do you know, a few rounds of his breath method, and you're experiencing these things. And it was incredible. The, the gains in strength were mind-boggling. The length of the breath holds were fascinating. Um, but then I made a big technical error. I, I ignored all the signs um, on Wim's site and that you spoke about, you know, do not do this in water, which is, uh, they were all over the place, but I thought, you know, free diving is a way of life for me, no problem. And the major technical error was not realizing, which is absurd after a lifetime of free diving, that it's carbon dioxide buildup that gives you the urge to breathe and not oxygen deprivation. Um, hugely important thing, please everyone burn that in. It's CO2 buildup that makes you want to breathe. And so I did the, after a long swim at the NYU pool, a few months ago, I started doing um, my wind breathing and did a series of underwater swims. I did about eight 25-meter swims, and I think I was on my fourth 50 and I underwater. And I um, this was after a long workout. And I went from this ecstatic state to unconsciousness. And I was actually on the bottom of the pool after blacking out from shallow water blackout for three minutes um, before someone pulled me out. And, you know, the doctors have told me usually it's 40 seconds to a minute to... Um, perhaps permanent brain damage, death, I got very lucky. My body saved my life. And they said that if it hadn't been all, all the training I've done for so many years, I would have been gone. And more specifically, you, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't, for, and this strikes me as so odd, you didn't have the reflexive inhalation of water. Is that right? Yeah, you I didn't, didn't, take, didn't take any water into my lungs, which is hugely you know, fortunate because fresh water in the lungs can be, can be terrible. Um, so my lungs had no water in it pretty much. Uh, after they pulled me out, I was unconscious for 25 minutes. I started breathing on my own though. And I, when I came to 25 minutes later, you know, I was blue everywhere else. My body sent all my, all the blood to my brain and my heart saved my life. And I'm here. Um, and it's been, it was a life changer on a lot of levels. You know, the idea of my, my four year old boy four blocks away sitting on the rug waiting for daddy to come home and me on, you know, unconscious in the bottom of a pool blue, just that's the kind of experience that, um, is shattering. How did that change how you think about training and these types of experiments or life in general? I know that's a very broad question, but yeah, I've been, I've been, how does it change your decision making? Is Yeah. Well, first of all, how it's influenced my life in general is I've, I've never lived with such a consistent sense of gratitude, beauty, and love in my, in my life. It's just flowing through my body, presence to the exquisite little ripples of beauty in everything I do. Um, and a sense of gratitude for the little things. It sounds cliched, but it's embodied and I, f I really feel it. Um, and in terms of 
and, and that's a that's a something I'm really grateful for. It's exquisite. I have a you know my little boy. My wife is um, pregnant. We have another another son coming in June, um, and it's made me rethink these questions of risk. And it, but on the other hand, it's been very important not to oversteer. I mean, one of the, the, the right. most important learning lessons that I've learned for myself in training elite mental performers is that the, is people oversteer all the time. They overcalibrate. And so, um, I've been very careful to sit with this and try to draw the right lessons out of it, not the wrong. Um, and not too big a lesson and not too small a lesson. And so, for example, this was a huge technical oversight I had. I didn't realize I was taking a big risk here. And there's a lot of big risks that I've taken in life. Um, <laughs> Some with you, <laughs> um, and and I think I'm actually pretty good at navigating those, uh, but I'm but I'm thinking about them quite a bit. And Being of course, cognizant of the level of danger right, or risk, right? But of course, it's very important for me to be cognizant in a, like in a group risk, as we've discussed. It's important to be present to your own level and the level of everyone else around you. Um, <laughs> we can get into some of those. Yeah, stories. we'll get into that. Um, but I've been really sitting with this. You know, since I was a a really young boy, I started playing chess when I was six years old. And by the time I was seven, I was the top ranked player. So I had in the country, so I had all this pressure on me. And a big part of the way that I found my therapy was flow. Can you explain that? Yeah. Like when I was under huge pressure, external pressure as a little boy, you know, my style as a chess player was to create chaos. I loved the game. I loved the battle of chess. Attacking chess. Right. Right. Attacking chess. Uh, And... And most players, you know, when they have a lot of pressure on them in the scholastic chess world, for example, and it's true in many fields, they learn how to memorize their way to victory, right? And they find shortcuts to, to getting good fast and controlling the game all the way. They think about rating points, they think about rankings, they think about winning, they have parental pressures, they have, you know, school pressures, they have sometimes publicity pressures if they're doing well. So they want to control their way. I, I had a different approach. I like to mix it up. I like to, to, you know, I grew up playing in Washington Square Park with the Hustlers who taught me to, to battle. It fit my personality. And it was, you know, a core part of my competitive style to create chaos and find hidden harmonies and find flow in chaos. And as I've reflected on this in recent years, a big part of how I've dealt with stresses has been to put myself into a flow state. Um, and this is a, an element of risk that I've been, I've been thinking about. It's, it's, it's different when you're 20 and 25 and 30 years old as a professional competitor or professional fighter um, and then, you know, now I'm 39 years old, a dad, which is the most important thing I've ever done in my life, being a father. And I'm so committed to it. Um, so I have to be quite cognizant of, of the distinction, for example, between, between risk competitively and risk mortally. When you're playing chess, it feels like life and death. It really does feel like life and death. When you lose a chess game, it feels like you've been shattered on the most fundamental level. And so I was quite comfortable mixing it up. Um, profoundly creating chaos and, and I'd be willing to take those risks, but actually it isn't life and death. Right. And then when you're a professional fighter, martial artist, you're, you, you know, you, you can break arms and legs in a second if you're, if you're not in deep focus or you can break your neck. You could, it, but again, the stakes are, it's you out there. Right. And then when you're a dad, it's, it's a little bit different. Right. And like when you're surfing or when you're rock climbing or whatever you're doing, that's in an extreme state. Um, so it's very important for me to be clear about the distinction between what felt like life and death as a chess right. player and what actually is life and sort death today. Metaphorical and literal. Right. And state. then there's the state of being um, someone who's found deep flow as the ultimate therapy. How do you... There are a number of different questions I want to ask 
related to everything you just said. The first is how do you initiate or facilitate a flow state and how would you describe it? Maybe we could hit that first. Well, I've had a lot of different ways of playing this over the years. For me, so I mean, I can relate, I can describe it in terms of myself and I can then we can go into how, when I train people, how I'd work with, with, with them. Great. Um, for me, love has been a huge part of flow. You know, I, I fell in love with chess and I found flow in the self-expression of, um, through an art form that I, that I absolutely loved. And I think this is really important with children, right? To, to find something that they feel just connected to and that they can express themselves through. They can bring out the essence of their being through some art. Um, and then there was tremendous competitive intensity. And of course, stretching yourself to your limit is a huge part of, it's, it's a very important precondition to, to flow. And I was always playing as people who were at my level or above. And so I was always stretched, right? Um, and then I was integrating in, in my teenage years, started integrating meditation into my practice, right? So I got very good at, at increasing my somatic awareness, my physiological introspective sensitivity. I began to feel the subtle ripples of quality in my process. I could feel when I moved from a nine or a 10 out of 10 down to back down to a nine or an eight. You're talking about in the meditation itself? No, I'm talking about in like through my meditation practice. You became more tactically sensitive when doing push hands or some other type of practice. Chess initially. Chess initially. And then then into push hands, right? Why is the tactile component important in chess? I think it's hugely important um, in mental disciplines. So for example, you know, in chess and today, a a lot of what I do today is, is I have this laboratory of training elite mental performers, largely in finance investors. And, um, a huge part of the training is in their physiological introspective sensitivity. That's, that's the, their somatic awareness. That's the foundational training. Why? Well, first of all, you know, we can't just separate our mind and our body. Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, the you, Cartesian you, duality makes right. I mean, this is a, your, your way of life as well. But we, we intuitively can feel things way before we are consciously aware of them, right? The chess player always senses danger before he sees it. Just like, you know, the hunter will sense the shark or the jaguar before he'll see it, right? Then he'll look for it. So the chess player's process is often to be studying a position to sense opportunity or danger and then to start looking for it, right? Deconstruct what it is and then find what it probably is and then start calculating, right? But that sense comes before. Or if you're a great decision maker, if you're an investor, you can sense danger, right? You can sense opportunity, but you need to have stilled your waters internally to feel the, like the subtle changes inside of you that would be opportunity or the crystallization of complex ideas um, or danger or the onset of a cognitive bias, for example, which is hugely important as a chess player or as an investor or as anything else. You, you know, this is one of the areas where I, we've had this ongoing dialogue in our friendship around what, what I call armchair professors, right? Um, philosophologists. Right. Philosophologists. <laughs> yes. So the people, this is a, philosophologist is a term of, um, Robert Persig, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, is one of my favorite books and, and thinkers. He's a friend of mine. Um, you know, the difference between the philosopher and the philosophologist is what Tim's referring to. Um, or the writer and the literary critic. Or the man in the arena and the armchair professor. Or Remy from Ratatouille and Anton Ego. <laughs> okay, I don't know that Who's one. Who's the food critic? <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, there it is. Okay, good. Right, yes, there it is. And so when we think about, for example, cognitive biases, the people, the, the, the academics who study cognitive biases, who speak about them. In and, my, and just for people who have no context on cognitive biases, an example, like the sunk cost fallacy. Yes. 
right? I've spent this amount, therefore I should put good money after bad because I feel like I've, I need to somehow try to salvage this money that I've put into a given position, right? right. I just wanted to give people some examples who, and who, um, we've had a number of meals with them. Uh, there's a gent would think twice. What was the author's name again? Do you recall? Mabusan? Yeah, Michael Mobison is who you're thinking Mobison. There yeah. we are. For people interested. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, and so one of the interesting things about, about the dialogue, the academic dialogue of cognitive biases is that there's the idea that the, the biases have to operate completely separately um, from the intuitive process, right? As if we, we have an intuitive process and then we have to go through a checklist of cognitive biases. In my experience, really high-level thinkers have integrated cognitive biases or an awareness of cognitive biases into their intu- intuitive process, right? So this is constant process. We've discussed this. Um, we discussed this a couple years ago, actually. Um, where you're, you're deconstructing technical awareness into something that, and so this process, for example, of, of building a pyramid of knowledge, we have a certain technical foundation, we have a high level intuitive leap, we can then deconstruct the intuitive leap into something that we can understand technically and replicate technically. And then we're raising our foundation to have higher and higher level intuitive leaps, right? This is this pyramid of knowledge, which in my, in my process is built upon by, like the, the intuitive leaps are what's guiding it. Similarly, we can learn how to take technical material and integrate it into our intuitive understanding. But we aren't going to intuit the cognitive bias. We're going to intuit the feeling that, that it corresponds. That, that, that corresponds with a bias being present. And right. so we think about this relative to the language, again, Robert Persig. I like the language of dynamic versus static quality, right? When you're, if you think about the timeline in, in a competitive state, for example, in a chess game, there's a certain objective truth to a chess position. If you think of that as a timeline which is moving, um, which is moving. I think about Persick's term of being at the front of the freight train of reality, right? Freight train is pushing through. Dynamic quality is right at the front of that freight train, right? Think about that as a timeline. And then there's the chess, the chess player's mind studying the position. When the chess player is present to the position, it's continuing, right? You're, you're, you're just running parallel to the truth of the position, to the dynamic quality of the position. But if, let's say if the, something changes, you make a slight mistake, you move from having a slight advantage to a slight disadvantage, but you're emotionally still connected, attached, to having the slight advantage, then what's going to be happen is that you're sort of stopping. Your, dyna- your dynamic quality is becoming static. But the timeline of the chess position is continuing. The game's continuing. But what's going to happen then is that you're going to subtly reject positions that you should accept, and you're going to stretch for positions that you can't, for evaluations that you can't really reach, and you're going to fall into a downward spiral. So that's, that's the onset of a cognitive bias. In that case, the cognitive bias would, would relate to, to the emotional clinging to a past evaluation. But if you had the present state awareness, which you had trained through different tools and approaches that you use with these elite performers, for instance, you would, you would have, you would sense the feeling of that cognitive dissonance and not get caught up in sort of the slipstream of that dislocation. Exactly. And the way that you would sense that in this case is that you would feel the slip away from dynamic quality, right? And so, and then you would deconstruct that feeling and then you would see what the bias is that's setting in. So this is, this is really important to, to, to say, right? It's not that we're going to intuitively develop the ability to know exactly what bias might be setting in in the moment, but we're going to cultivate the ability to have presence, right? I, I think about the idea of cultivating quality as a way of life, cultivating presence in a, as a way of life in little moments and small, when we're holding our babies, when we're reading a book, when we're having a conversation with a friend, when we're meditating. How do you help people to identify what uh, that feeling, to become more sensitized to it? And just as a, as a maybe... Not a counterexample, but an example of not listening to 
intuition or instinct. So we were both in Costa Rica recently doing paddleboarding. Last Great meal, story. last meal of the trip. Uh, we we go out to celebrate. We go to this seafood restaurant. The food comes out. It's a Sunday, and I leaned over the plate and smelled the food, and immediately knew that it was something I shouldn't eat. And despite that, you know, everybody's ordering drinks, everybody's celebrating, went into the food, and about a third of the way through, I stopped, and I just pushed the plate away. And then, lo and behold, everybody gets severe, severe food poisoning, except for the two people who, I guess we, we tried to narrow it down to whether it was the garlic dip or any number of other things. But yeah, we were, we were on the toilet each, like every five minutes for, for the next 12 hours minimum. And the great uh, part of it is you and I were, were, were adjoining bedrooms. <laughs> we were sharing the same toilet. So that was a hell of a night. And we never saw each other. It was amazing. But I heard that flushing happening, <laughs> taking turns. That was, that was a brutal experience. I remember watching you sniffing. You had this, this like expression of concern come over you at the dinner table. And, and, and like I saw that moment. Uh, maybe I wasn't present enough to you and you didn't. It, it's a great example of you, you didn't fully trust your gut. Yeah. But you were right on. It was amazing. Or, that you felt or I felt a sort of social pressure to conform and not rock the boat. So how do you help someone, say, in the world of investing, just as an example, develop, not only develop the sensitivity to, to, to separate that signal from the noise, but also to actually listen to it, right? right. Uh, yeah. These are, these are two... Two different points, right? So, right. So let's talk about developing it, and then let's talk about listening to it, right? Because they're both so hugely important, and I'd frame them both thematically um, in in different ways, and I'd build training systems around them both that would be quite different. So, when we're thinking about about cultivating the the, the awareness, I mean, I think that a lot of this relates to uh, a return to a more natural state, right? The, the this isn't so much about learning as unlearning. Agreed. Totally. Getting out of our own way, releasing obstructions. I think about the training process as the movement toward unobstructed self-expression, right? Obstructedness. Um, we have so many habits that are fundamentally blocking us, right? From the phone addictions. Um, people are constantly distracted. People don't have the ability to sit in empty space anymore. People are bombarded by inputs all the time. They're in a constantly reactive state. So one way that you could frame this out is the study, is cultivating a way of life which is fundamentally proactive, Right? In little things and big, and you can build day architectures that are fundamentally proactive. But then, getting into the, the 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 weeds a little bit more, I think it's most foundational to develop a mindfulness practice to cultivate the ability to sense the most subtle ripples of human experience. Now, I've been trying to onboard people in specifically in the in the finance space, for example, into meditation for a bit over eight years now. Initially, I would just try to get guys to meditate; they'd look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> um, then, what I I realized. I had this breakthrough, which was that if I got, had them start doing stress and recovery interval training, then when, so oscillating heart rate between 170s and 140s, say, um, so let's say someone does a six or eight or 10 minute warm up and then they're on a heart rate interval doing some kind of cardio bike or whatever, moving their heart rate up and down between 170s and 140s, when they become aware of the quality of their focus on their breath during the recovery intervals, um, enhancing their ability to lower their heart rate more quickly. And they start to feel their heart rate, listen to it. When that awareness would kick in, I'd start, I'd layer in meditation. And the on-ramp was just much more successful. People would just, and then what I started to refine that with is, is biofeedback. So now what I'll do is I'll have them do the stress and recovery interval training. Then I'll have them do some form of biofeedback, often with, for example, heart rate variability through heart math or working with a specialist. And then when they begin to 
have a certain kind of consistency of their ability to observe, to, to enhance their emotional regulation, to observe these subtle ripples between stress and coherence. Um, and you can see their biometric data. Then you layer in meditation, and then the, the on-ramp is even more powerful. And so then they embed it, layer in a meditation practice. I think Headspace is a wonderful tool for layering in Agreed. meditation. Yeah. Um, and I think for a lot of people also starting with Headspace before bed is another kind of gateway drug approach to then building into or leading into the morning meditation, which a lot of people have trouble with because they wake up, they feel rushed. It's another thing to layer in on top of the brushing of the teeth, the getting the kids ready, et cetera. And so sometimes the evening approach, but I agreed that Headspace is really useful. And I think it's really important. I think, I think you're absolutely right there. And I think it's really important to have a core meditation practice, which is at least in the beginning in, in, the conditions in your life that are most conducive to deep focus and to not being distracted. Later in life, we want to be able to tap our meditation under complete, you know, in chaos. But we want to cultivate it initially in the most peaceful time possible. So if you have kids waking up before the kids um, are up or in the evening once they're asleep, or if you don't have kids, then life is much simpler. <laughs> yeah. Or during your commute. I, I've found a lot of people who will just like throw on, headspace or some song that they meditate to and they know they have 20 minutes on the subway and it's like all right that's my 20 minutes right um, yeah I, I enjoy meditating on the commute a lot personally you've been meditating for a long time i mean what i'm not sure how you feel about this i, I find that if people can have the first two three months of meditation practice in a quiet room then if they start doing it in their commute it's a much it, they've, they've sort of built the foundation of it in this really quiet space i think i think that from what I can tell, it appears to depend a lot on what type of concentrator you are. And what I mean by that is, if you look at writers, for instance, there are some writers who want to be in a quiet environment in order to hear whatever the muse is whispering. And they'll go to a library. They'll go to someplace like that. I can't do that. For whatever reason, I thrive in noisy environments. Because if I have the noise, I feel like it focus me. it forces me to focus inward. So for me, uh, studying languages even in a loud environment, writing in a loud environment, uh, for whatever reason, is a forcing function for me. But I can definitely see why for even perhaps a majority of people it would be... I think it, it's partially due to the fact that, for instance, I'm looking at your wall right now, and the fact that that picture is tilted like five <laughs> degrees to the right is uh -huh. making me totally bonkers you think we should fix should we fix it <laughs> this is training for me look at that for the rest of the time we're Exposure talking yeah, but the 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 same is true auditorily so if if i have a controlled noise like music or the the chuk -a -chuk -a -chuk -a -chuk of the of the car in the subway i can focus on that repetitive noise but if i'm sitting in a space that i want to be quiet and I have that controlling aspect of my personality trying to impose itself on something I can't control. And then there's like somebody hitting reverse in a truck and I can hear that outside. It will drive me nuts. Uh, hmm. Long Beautiful. observation to a short comment. But uh, I do think that if you can drop in in a quiet environment, the point being, as you said, I think to stack the deck in the beginning. Yeah. Like learn how to do this in a controlled, unstressful environment, and then you can ratchet up over time to when you can use it in the most stressful of environments. Right. Because we don't ultimately want to be meditating in a flower garden. We want to be able to meditate um, 
and have a meditative state throughout our life in a hurricane in a thunderstorm um you know in when sharks are attacking you any moment because that's they're paddle boarding <laughs> when you're paddle boarding the last day on a first trip and josh is like you'll be fine and then three leashes snap <laughs> and all hell breaks loose <laughs> <laughs> that's a long story the killer set comes in <laughs> so, so that's just a little context here Timbo and I have been on this great adventure um, stand up paddle surfing taking it on together mm-hmm. and we found this we got a great friend down in, in Costa Rica Eric Antinson who um, actually has the, the other other po- podcast other than yours I listen to in life the Paddle Woo podcast Paddle Woo yeah. Paddle Woo um, Eric's awesome he's a great dude he runs Blue Zone Sup he's a brilliant teacher um, really fascinating mind deconstructing Stand up paddle surfing on increasingly small boards for us, and we've been going out there, and we've had some hilarious close calls. Our last trip a couple of weeks ago, we almost, we we almost we had we almost destroyed each other. <laughs> yeah, we had there was a, this one like witching hour where the ju- <laughs> the juju is really weird. Almost everybody either got like de- decapitated, impaled by a board, or just head on jousting collision, which is what. But the point that you bring up, I think, is is right on about meditation. That that you know, when you're building training programs for elite mental performers, the most important thing is to understand them so deeply and build programs that are unique to their to their funk. Embrace their funk. Um, that's a term my buddy um, Graham, who's uh, who's yeah. a, a dear friend of ours, who comes on our surf adventures with us. Um, he's a brilliant thought partner. Um, embrace the funk. Could you explain that? Yeah, we have to embrace our funk. We have to figure out what it, you know. You think about the, the the entanglement of genius and madness, right? Or brilliance and eccentricity. It, understanding that entanglement is always a precursor to working with anybody who's trying to be world class at something, because that entanglement is fundamental to their being, and they have to ultimately embrace embrace their funk, embrace their eccentricity, embrace what makes them different, um, and then build on it. Right. And we, so we think about self-expression. It's not trying to take everyone and put them into the same mold. It's trying to understand someone very deeply and build a training program, a way of life, um, that helps them bring out the essence of their being through their art, whatever their art is. I mean, and that's how I relate to the path to excellence in chess and martial arts, in, in different arts, in, in, in very actively in the investing space. When I work in education with children, um, through my nonprofit, it's, it's again, the, the movement, um, to unobstructed self-expression, but but the problem is the teachers don't listen. They don't know how to listen, right? They don't know how to sit or parents to sit in empty space and observe the nuance of their child's mind or their student's mind, and then build a way of life around that. They 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 people are used to teaching the way they learned. Um, think about martial arts instructors. Almost all of them trained a certain way, and then teach that way, which alienates sixty-five, seventy percent of the students by definition. Uh, it's very rare that you have someone who can take the time to. And it takes a lot of time to know someone deeply enough to build a training program and a way of life around who they are. I mean, for me, and what I, I only work with with eight teams, and I I don't take on new clients. Very seldom do I take on a new client. And I won't work with more than eight people. You also don't do a lot of PR for everybody listening. I always get these emails and texts are like, "Hey, could you intro me to Josh? I want to have on my show." And I'm like, "He's not. He's not going to do it." <laughs> Tim, you're the only person <laughs> once a year or two. Uh, you're the one guy who brings me out of my hermetic cave. I live a bit of a strange life because I'm not on. I don't know, it's strange. It doesn't feel strange to me. It feels completely natural. But I'm, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or any of these things. I don't even know the names of most of them. I have an email account, though. <laughs> I do have that. Um, that box is great. <laughs> I, I, I cultivate empty space as a way of life for, for, um, 
for the creative process. So Timbo, you're the one guy who brings me out of the cave where we have a lot of fun together. <laughs> so you, you were talking about these top performers and getting to know them on a very deep, subtle level so that you can help them express say, the combination of their madness and genius, or at least embrace it, among other things. How do you think about parenting? Yeah, let's dig into this one. <laughs> um, all right, so and then let's loop, remember to loop back after this cause we, to, to finish our this discussion of first of all, we were talking about how to cultivate the somatic awareness, and then how, and to, then listen. how to listen to it. So let's go back to how to train we'll to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, parenting, Jack. Well, Jack's the love of my life. I mean, this kid is such an awesome dude, and I parenting has um has been the most fantastic learning experience I've ever gone through. So from when he was born. I, I tried very hard not to go in with it with a lot of preconceived ideas and to be attuned to him, to listen to him. From when he was just days, weeks old, he, he was teaching me. You know, you talk about teaching presence. We, we, our eyes would be connected. And if I would think about something else, he would, his eyes would pull me back. And if he, if there was any distraction that set in, he would pull me back. And as he got a little older, he would just take your face and, face and pull it back, um, in the sweetest way. And so the depth of connection, you know, being, deeply attuned to a young spirit that hasn't become blocked, that is in that state of unobstructed self-expression, that is just this unbelievably game learner, unblocked learner. And Jack is the gamest little person I've ever known in my life. Um, and so, but, but I, of course, I have been thinking about learning and education for a lot of years. And so I had some, some thoughts. And so, for example... I think that control is the need for control is something that inhibits people in life. The need to have external conditions be just so, in, for, in order for them to be able to. Um, right, Timbo's pointing at the at my grandmother's painting. That was my grandma's painting. It's a beauty, right? It's great. Yeah, Stella, Stella Waitzkin. That's that's her self portrait. Okay, we're gonna leave it messed up. We're working on control. <laughs> so, like from when a young age, for me, I when I started playing chess, I would create chaos on the board like I described, and then I would play in in chess shops with people blowing smoke and playing music, and I'd play chess with like loud Guto monk chants bursting into you know in, in my head from speakers. I would when I play cards, I would never play, playing Jinromi. I'd always keep the melds out of order. So Say that again, when I would play cards. I would, cards, like a cards, cards. Like a card game, playing like Jin Rami, a card yeah. game. I would never organize my hand. I'd always keep Did it. Did you say time. meld? Yeah, like if you have like three sevens. Ah, uh, okay. Or, right, or like All right. Jack Queen, Jack Queen, Queen uh, of Hearts or whatever. Contact. I would keep everything out of order, so I'd have to reorganize it in my mind. I'd keep my room messy. So oh, I'd, you wouldn't gather your, I see, you wouldn't, you wouldn't move your cards around to organized. Right. Condition. I was creating chaos everywhere to train at being able to be at peace in chaos and organize things in as that was kind of part of my way of life mm-hmm. and i found it w- to be a huge advantage that i had competitively and so one thing one of the biggest mistakes that i observed in the first year of jack's life or year or two of jack's life that i observed with parents is that they do this, have this language around weather weather being good or bad and whenever the weather whenever it was raining they'd be like it's bad weather you'd hear you know moms babysitters dads talk about it's bad weather we can't go out or it's good weather we can go out and so that means that somehow we're externally reliant on conditions being perfect in order to be able to go out and have a good time. So Jack and I never missed a single storm. Every rainstorm, I don't think we, I don't think we've missed one storm other than maybe one when he was sick, but we, I don't think we've, I don't think we've missed a single storm, rain or snow, going outside and romping in it. And we've developed this language around how beautiful it was. And so when now, whenever there's a rainy day, Jack says, look, dad, it's such a beautiful rainy day. And we go out and we play in it. And, you know, I wanted him to have this, internal locus of control, right? To not be reliant on 
external conditions being just so. And then that kind of has, in, in now he's four, he's getting older, so we've been playing with these things. We began meditating together um, when he was uh, a little over a year, just doing breath work. Initially, we started doing meditation work when he was in that kind of most pure state. So when he'd be taking a warm bath and he was lying on his back and being completely relaxed, blissed out, we would just naturally breathe together. I wanted the habit to be formed in something that was the initial experience to be in conditions that were most conducive to just natural peace. Um, and then we have in recent months been taking it to an interesting funky place. So, so he would was watch me do the Wim Hof training and I'd be putting my hands in ice buckets and doing this interesting breath work through cold water. And he would initially watch and he'd come over and stick his finger in and put his hand in. So this is a great moment. A couple months ago, we were out romping in this huge snowstorm and Jack about 10 minutes into it, we just got on this long search for the right carrot to put on to make the snowman with. We found the the, oh, for the, the, nose. the the nose. We found it, and then Jack got. He was in this huge drift, and he got his boots just loaded up with snow. And he looked at me and he said, "Dad, Dad, my my feet are cold. They're filled. My boots are filled with snow. But that's okay. I'll just do the Wim Hof and make them warm." And I looked at him, and then he for an hour and a half we played after that. Feet just covered with snow, and he was completely fine. Never mentioned it again. And then he got increasingly interested in in this internal terrain, and we would take hot baths together. We'd take a bath together every night. And then he would want to turn on the cold shower and get in it. And he w- we'd play what we call the It's So Good game. And <laughs> we'd, so we kind of reframe this thing. You know, I, I have this, you know, people tend to bounce off of discomfort, whether it's mental or physical. And so they run up, at, whether if they run into internal resistance, whether it's a meditation training or someone exposing a weakness, or if they're training and someone might be better than them, whatever, whatever it is, they bounce away from things that might expose them. They're repelled from it. Right, right. And but you know the flip side of this is to learn the way I I, you, I talk about living on the other side of pain, pain being like mental or physical discomfort, right? And mu- much of life that's so rich comes from the, on the other side of it, um, the other side of challenge, internal or external challenge. And with Jack, of course, I'm not using that like, but it's a little child's embodiment of it. We we started to play with turning on the cold water and he would say, it's so good, Dada. And we'd kind of be in the hot bath and play in the cold and he would say, it's so good. It's so good. And he began to have this gorgeous, blissful smile meditating through it. He would, and we, you know, he would say, I'm meditating through it. It's so good. And we were reframing cold. Cold was, is a metaphor from something that is just, you bounce away from to something that you can learn to sit with, to be neutral in, to find pleasure in. Just like the weather. And then we had this experience the other day where he said to me, um, you know, Dad, will you tickle me slowly? <laughs> and I always tickle him. He laughs uproariously. But we were lying in bed and I was tickling him very slowly. And he was, he said, I'm going to do my meditation. He would meditate. And then he said to me, then the next day, he said, Dad, will you tickle me slowly? And I did it. And then he said, can you pick him a little bit faster? And, and I didn't suggest this to him. He suggested it to me. And then we played this game where we would say one to 10. And I would tickle him slowly and he'd start doing his meditation. And we'd move it from, one, two, and we'd go up to, he'd like be doing his meditation. And finally, I'd be full tilt tickling him. He'd normally be in hysterics, and he was just sitting there meditating um, and not laughing. And he found this so interesting. And he's now guiding the process in this, in this beautiful way. And now we're turning it to, to talking about, you know. Question, just to yeah. interject. Did you at any point condition him to be proactive in that way? Or was it just an organic, now I'm in the driver's seat? I think I encourage him to grab the wheel all the time. I mean, a huge part of my relationship to parenting, and this is from my mom, and I watch my mom with Jack, and I think this is maybe the greatest gift that my mom gave me is, is having a sense of agency in the world. You know, the idea that, you know, that having a sense that I can impact the world, right? 
and that my and that, that my compass really matters. Right. So when I grew up, I was I wasn't you know seen but not heard. I was from a, when I was five and six years old. They were having adult conversations with friends, and our, and I was I was part of it. They wanted to hear my ideas, and I felt that they mattered. And that's a big part of how I I believe in and my wife and I believe in raising Jack. And so he he um <laughs> he plays a really active role in everything that we do. And so it was sort of a natural thing. And it was all fun and play. I wasn't pushing any of these things on him at all. This is stuff that he wanted to do. But then he, him naturally, I've been, I've been kind of blown away by how he's been transferring this stuff over. I mean, lateral thinking or thematic thinking, the ability to take a lesson from one thing and transfer it over to another, I think is one of the most important disciplines that any of us can cultivate or, or ways of being. And it's something that Jack and I have from a, a really young age. We began to cultivate this from when he was really small around this principle of go around. Um, we, we, we would, we would initially, it was like it, the first thing that time it happened is that he was trying, he was really tiny. He was trying to get in. We were in a little cottage, single little cottage in a, in, in, um, on Martha's Vineyard, tiny little cottage in a big field. And he was trying to get in one door and he couldn't, but he could get in the other door. And I said, Jack, go around. And he looked at me and then he went around and then go around became a language for us physically. If you can't go one way, you go around to another way, but then it became a language for us in terms of solving puzzles and in terms of any way, time you were running with an obstacle, go around. And then working with the metaphor of go around opened up this way that we would just have dialogue around connecting things, right? Taking a way of, of, of a principle from one thing and applying it to something else. And we've had a lot of fun with that. And so it's, it's fascinating to see you with this game little dude, if you, have this thematic dialogue, principle-driven dialogue, and we're we're um, cultivating somatic awareness, cultivating the ability to feel these little ripples inside. I mean, Jack's telling me his dreams in this beautiful way. He tells me, you know, how his emotions feel in his body. Um, it's a great journey. I'm learning so much from him. There's a book you've mentioned to me a number of times, or at the very least a researcher, and I'm probably going to massacre this name as well. Is it Carol Dweck? Getting that right? Mindset? Yeah, Carol Dweck, mindset, yeah. Yeah, fixed and entity, like fixed or entity theories of intelligence versus incremental or growth mindset. Yeah, Carol Dweck's one of the most important foundational developmental psychologists, I think, around, around this distinction of, of a fixed perspective on how good somebody is. You know, let, let's frame it like this. Most children, unfortunately, are educated to believe that they have a certain ingrained level of ability in things. You are smart, you are dumb, you are average. Right. And they're told, and, and the sad thing is that when they are, edu- when, even when they're praised, they're told how smart they are, right? Or you're such a good writer, right? You're such a, you're, you're so good at math or, and the kids will say, I'm smart at this or I'm dumb at that, right? And so, but if you're very smart at one thing, then that means that if you fail, then you must be dumb at it. And so it becomes very static, Right. And the kids are often quite brittle when they have a fixed mindset, right? Or an entity theory of intelligence. Well, a growth mindset or a mastery oriented mindset is one where we understand that our, our, the path to mastery involves incremental growth, right? We, we're not in, we don't have an ingrained level of ability at something. We're going to have successes and failures. We're going to work at things and it's, 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 it's work, it's practice. Um, and it's an open-mindedness to life's experiences that makes us succeed. How would the praise differ? You would praise a kid for the process versus the outcome. And so you would say, I'm so proud of how hard you worked at your math, not you're so smart at math, right? Or if someone, if someone has a failure, the other side of it is, is not to say that, don't worry about it, you're just not good at math, you'll do something else. It's to say, well, how can we practice at this to get better? 
And so we're focusing on the process and not the outcome. That's like the, the fundamental principle. And it's so easy to, um, to say it, but it's, it's very hard for people to, to live it as parents, especially if they don't embody it themselves. What you see often with kids and parents is that the, um, the parents are fundamentally fixed. They, they have an entity theory of intelligence themselves. They're fixed. They're stuck. But they've read the material of Carol Dweck or somebody else, and they, they want to parent their kids around a growth mindset. But the kids see what they embody, not what they say. So we have to embody it. I mean, one of the most important things that we do with, I, I think that we do with my foundation um, and our work with schools, with programs around the world is that we, when we're working with teachers, it's not just, this is the material you should teach your students. It, it's working with these core principles and embodying it themselves first. And then um, through that embodied intelligence, working with the kids and how they can embody it. We have to walk the talk. So let's, let's go back to what you said we should go back to at some point, which is somatic sensitivity those sort of those dimples of light in the darkness that most people overlook. Uh, how do you train that? Well, thematically, the first thing I would say is that, is that we need to think about cultivating an internal locus of control or an internal orientation versus an external one, right? So as an artist or a performer, we have all these external pressures on us. Let's say, for example, again, let, let's talk about investors again. Let's say an investor is running a, a $1 billion investment vehicle. And they have partners. They have people who invest in that, right? And they have to write investment letters. Um, they have all the partners, say they have 30 or 40 or 50 partners who are institutions, maybe endowments, educational endowments, charities, whatever, who have put their money into this investment vehicle. And maybe that person has his own money as well or her own money in, in this investment vehicle. Well, for them to be successful, they have to operate from the inside out. They have to bring out the essence of who they are as a performer, like we do, we're discussing, um, or as a human being, to bring that out through their art. But if they are constantly feeling pressured by what others expect from them, what others want from them, how they'll be perceived, right? Or, you know, how people are looking at their Facebook post or how their tweet is being responded to, right? It's tweet. That's what it is, right? That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> See? <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting for me, like watching people watch their Instagram accounts, right? I see it with buddies with all the time. It's natural. It's, it's completely human. But, but then we're, th we're aware of how we're perceived, right? One of the major way reasons that I stay away from these things is because I can feel how susceptible I am to this stuff, right? You publish a book and it's on Amazon. It, it's so hard not to go look at the Amazon numbers, right? And then a book comes out and you're tracking them, even if you know it's ridiculous and you shouldn't be doing it. Now, now someone like you, you're such a world-class um, and you've so systematically trained at and cultivated the ability to market these things. This is actually a very important scientific input for you. It's not for most authors. Most authors is an addiction, right? So right. that's a completely different point, in my opinion. Um, you're actually gathering data and using it. Most people are just just constantly feeling... Um, tapping the vein. Right, tapping the vein. So with investors, what this often relates to is P&L checking, profit and loss checking. Oh, sure. Right? So most investors check P&L hundreds of times a day. In fact, it's constantly because it's on their screen all the time. And so having these like little adrenal hits all the time, right? Whether it's dopamine or cortisol, whether they're making money or losing money, they're constantly bouncing off of these things. That's the, the ultimate external, external orientation, right? So if you think about, about internal plus proactive versus external plus reactive, this is how I would tend to frame this out. We want to build a proactive way of life that's, that's, that's fundamentally moved from the inside out. Versus a reactive way of life, where we're constantly reacting to all of these inputs, which we may or may not want, um, and where we're constantly beleaguered by or oppressed by a sense of of how we're going to be perceived. 
social pressures, right? And so then you're talking about a really high level artist who might have a really subtle intuition about something. Um, and they should listen to that intuition or they should, should at least deconstruct that intuition and investigate it and, and see if it's the right way to go. But they're aware that that intuition might not be perceived as impressive by others. The problem is that the others usually aren't world-class artists. They're the armchair professors. They're the philosophologists. And so you have the man in the arena who's compromised by a sense of self-consciousness of what the critics are going, how, how the critics are going to perceive him or her, which is ridiculous because it's like an A player thinking about how, well, the approval of a C player. And that's disastrous. That's external orientation. That's like looking at, you know, I mean, thinking that we have, we're going to get food poisoning from something, that something's off and then think, and then dismissing it because of, I mean, first of all, there's the incredibly subtle sense is how strong the intuition is, right? I mean, I, I, that, no one else at that table there, and we had some pretty high level dudes sitting at that table had that feeling that, that we were about to eat something that had food poisoning, right? So it was very subtle. You had a very subtle sense. It wasn't banging you over the head, right? And then there's the feeling of the social pressures and everything, right? It's a very interesting, subtle example. Yeah. Right? But it's, but, but the subtle pressures, pressures were louder in that case than, than like the really subtle intuition that you had. And then there's having the attitude of, I don't care about the social pressures. But that's really hard, right? Which I was able to do a third of the way through. But you not, did. But not before. Right. I think you're actually really, you know, in my observation, you're really evolved with this. I mean, we, 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 I mean, I, I, um, I mean, you have so much external pressure and external awareness on you. I, I'm consistently find it stunning and impressive how you're able to embrace your funk, how to, to live a life that is attuned to your kind of inner inner ripples. I mean, I, I think it's actually rather unique. It's, I think it's a core strength of yours, in my opinion. Thanks, man. I, I think that one element that's been very helpful in trying to mitigate the risks and dangers in that, in the sort of paradox of trying to be introspective while having a very public-facing life is stoicism. And, yeah. uh, and I remember reading at one point, I want to say it was Cato, who is considered by his contemporaries and his successors in uh, sort of Stoic thought leadership to be the perfect Stoic in a lot of respects. And I'm going to get the colors wrong here, but he, he would deliberately wear, I think it was a blue tunic as opposed to a purple tunic to encourage people to ridicule him because he wanted to be embarrassed about only those things worth being embarrassed about. So training himself not to be overly uh, sensitized to the, the critiques of the C players around him. And so I constantly, I remember for instance, <laughs> this is such a silly example, but I was just in Montana uh, and I went into the ski shop to get some, some, some light gloves just for walking around, not for skiing. And I looked at the whole rack and I was like, ooh, I like these. And they were like the most ridiculous Dr. Seuss, like striped <laughs> nonsense gloves you've ever seen. Just like they will not match with anything. Just ludicrous looking. 
And uh, I asked the woman at the front desk, I'm like, what do you think of these? Or should I get a different one? She's like, nah, I think you should get the black ones. And I thought about it. Like, I sat there and I thought about it. And I was like, nope, I'm getting the Dr. Seuss clothes. <laughs> and so I got the Dr. Seuss clothes. And that expresses itself for me in a lot of different places because I will, for instance, do, and this is not something I recommend to everybody. Uh, so, caveat emptor, you can't be, you know, you're in control of your own life. Uh, so, you know, if, if you if you do this, you can face some dire consequences. But I'll do uh, drunk Q and A's on Facebook, and I'll have a bunch of booze, and I'll go on, and I'll do a Q and A. Something will come out that will embarrass me, but it's not going to be life destroying. And so it's kind of systematically create an environment in which I feel like I don't have a reputation to protect, which is another reason why I talk about you know the psychedelics, and I'll talk very openly about. Uh, you know, monogamy versus non-monogamy. And I'll throw all these things out there to basically ensure, A, that I never become a politician, and B, that I don't feel like I have a fixed identity to cling to that I need to protect because I, I see how disastrous that can be. Yeah, that's really, that's really powerful. And, the, you know, the fire of competition plays that role as well. I mean, you look at people who compete, Let's talk about martial artists. So, so I own a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school with Marcelo Garcia. We've discussed Marcelo a lot, definitely. And um, you just as I mentioned, uh, creating chaos and training yourself to operate optimally in chaos compared to others. And of course, Marcelo, who's what ten-time, nine-time, yeah, nine-time world champion, is the, the master of the scramble. Yeah, they call him the king of the scramble. The king right. of the scramble. I mean, he's the he's the greatest transitional player in the history of sport, maybe. Um. He's incredible. I mean, his, his, the essence of his game is to not hold, to allow people to move and to, again, embrace the chaos and get there first. His, his, he just has cultivated the transition so systematically that he has 10 frames in a transition where somebody else will just be moving from one position to the next. But that transition itself is, is something which is like, that's his ocean. It's a beautiful thing to see. But if you look at the school, Marcelo runs the school so beautifully. And we've got, at this point, um, a lot of world-class competitors. A lot of the school tends to win pretty much all the tournaments. A lot of the guys who you've trained with. Um, <laughs> with the Tim Ferriss experiment. <laughs> that was hilarious. Oh, my God. That was awesome. We got Day one, I'm like, okay, I think I broke my rib. <laughs> <laughs> you did great, man. You did great. Uh, thanks. I was proud of you. Um, yeah, that, guys, you should check that out. That was pretty, pretty. The TV show. If you want to see me get my ass handed to me uh, and have a great time training with guys like uh, John yep. Stava, who's an incredible athlete and teacher. Yeah, John uh, is fantastic. That, that's a TV show worth checking out, but um, not to Well, if you look at the learning curve of the people in the school, the ones who put themselves in the line as a way of life just learn much faster than the ones who are protecting their egos, right? Most schools, what happens is someone gets good and then they have to win to pr to protect their status as being very good or dominant. Usually happens with martial arts instructors, which is that they reach a certain level, um, they open a school, they get a little bit older, you know, they get a little fatter, um, they have a reputation, so they stop training because they don't want to be exposed by the young students who are coming up and they, you know, sit in the sideline, but they get their egos get increasingly large, but riddled with insecurity and this brittleness tends to then splay down to the students and the whole school becomes a joke, right? Versus, you know, Marcelo, the way Marcelo runs our school is, is so magnificent. Everyone's on the mat training so hard as a way of life. Um, everyone's on a world-class growth curve. And it's very interesting to observe who the top competitors pick out when they're five rounds into the sparring sessions and they're completely gassed. The ones who are in the steepest growth curve look for the hardest guy there, the one who will beat them up, who, who might beat them up, while others will look for someone who they can take a break on. 
right? And so there's that constant search for exposure. And if you, and that's, that's kind of a parallel to what you're describing in terms of not having an ego to protect. You're, or, or, or a, or a, um, you said not having, uh, yeah, a reputation, a reputation to protect. Or a fixed identity to protect. Right. So this is uh, a way as a competitor to constantly put yourself into the fire. Here's a question I have for you because I, I feel like, particularly in jujitsu, I could get better at this. You remember when we did that one day, we had the gi on and you're like, Timbo, your lips are purple. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to have a heat stroke and have to be carted off. But the, uh, do the guys, so is it correlation or causation? Meaning are the guys who, who on round five pick the hardest guy in the room, have they already self-selected by coming to the school in a sense, or have the, did they start off perhaps when they walked in the door, the guy who would pick the easiest person in the room at round five and have been converted into the guy who will pick the hardest person? You see both. You see both. You see both. In the latter case, how do they cultivate that transition? I think that Marcelo is a great role model. I think it's a good, I mean, it's a fantastic metaphor for life, right? I mean, this is, you need this everywhere. 100%. I mean, I think that, you know, we think about this, this principle of cultivating quality as a way of life and the big things and little things. And you, you look at the way Marcelo runs that, that training environment is, is pretty exceptional. I mean, if people don't have, he puts his ass on the line all the time. His ass is on the line all the time. Um, and he's, you know, he's getting a little bit older. He's, um, he has two kids. And he's a wonderful dad. Um, his life is not just 100% jujitsu anymore. Um, he has all of these, you know, young 20s, at this point, world class students who want to go at it hard with him. And he goes at it hard with them. He wants to. He doesn't mind getting exposed. He, he brings it. He doesn't, he's, he's living it. But he's also creating an environment where people are present to quality in little things. If someone is, it doesn't have their gi on straight, if they haven't tied their belt, if they're sitting in a way that's sloppy. What happens? Does he? He tells them to straighten their gi. I love that. I love that. When people are running, are are doing the warm up, if they're cutting the corner a little bit, he tells them to run the full circle. If people are doing a certain drill in a sloppy way, he refines it. So it's the it's it's the little things, right? And as you watch Marcelo doing the warm up, there's a way that he'll have his hand and just brush against the mat as he passes it. Like you can feel him engaging his tactile, feeling for the room, right? You know when you. He's someone who embodies and teaches quality's way of life. So if you're in your fourth or fifth round and you are looking for a way out, you feel that you're fundamentally violating this principle which you've been cultivating. Right, a tenet of the school. Right. And, and you know, this is, this is so important. We think about a, a core part of how I train people is around the interplay of themes or principles and habits, right? The habits are what we can actually train at. The, the principle is what we're trying to embody. And so we'll train it two or three or four or five habits, which are the embodiment of a core principle. But the idea is to burn the principle into the hundreds of manifestations of that principle become our way of life, right? And so in this case, we're talking about Marcelo talking about or embodying the principle of quality in all these little ways. These little ways you could say don't matter, but they add up to, to matter hugely. Oh, I think the little things are the big things, yeah. right? Because they're a f- reflection. I mean, this might sound cliched, but it's like how you do anything is how you do everything, right? And uh, it, It's such a... It's such a beautiful and critical principle. And and we don't, most people think they can wait around for the big moments to turn it on. But if you don't cultivate turning it on as a way of life in the little moments, there's and there's hundreds of times more little moments than big, then there's no chance in the big moments. Yeah, that, okay. So if people listening don't take anything else from this interview, I think that's 
so key to who you are. It's so key to why you've been good at what you've been good at. That's it right there. And uh, there's a, oh, I'm going to, here, let me mangle another name since that seems to be one of our themes for the show. <laughs> this episode is, I think it's Archilochus, Archilochus, perhaps. I'm going to get this wrong, but it was a, a quote, got to be a Roman, maybe a Greek, who knows, uh, who said, we, we do not raise to the level of our hopes, we fall to the level of our training. Yeah. And if you can't just do one every five years waiting for the, the big event, you're not going to have the training necessary. It's such a, you know, it's, it's a principle that I've been thinking about a lot around parenting. You know, we, you, you see so often people with their second child are not as present, right? Now, unfortunately, in today's world, people are often not present with their first child either. I, I, was, I was taking a walk yesterday <laughs> with a dear friend of mine in Central Park in, at dusk. We were just talking about all those ideas we've been, we've been thinking about. And we walked past this woman who was, had three children in, in a stroller and was walking her dog. And the children were all talking to her. And she was on the cell phone having a conversation with a friend. Um, and it wasn't like a quick, it was like a long gossipy conversation. And I was just watching this. It was an exquisite external environment, like the embodiment of distraction, three children and a dog, like the children, like looking, trying to pull her, but she was just in this other world. Right. We think about the distraction of parenting. And then you think about what often happens with parents with the first child, they're completely tapped in, um, because this is all new. They're present. And the second child, they just, um, well, relatively neglect. We see that all the time. Right, I'm thinking about this a lot because we're about to have our second child, and so I'm 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 thinking about like how important it is to not take for granted the things that you've done right and think they'll just be there, because um, they're not going to be there as unless you're present, equally present, right? We think about and we see this in the martial arts as someone who trains twice a day, you know, as a way of life for ten years, you know, training until they drop and doing external training as well with strength and conditioning and stretching and everything else, and then. They get to a place where they're consistently winning and then they think they can train, you know, seven times a week instead of 10. And it'll be the same. It's not the same. Like that slippage shows. There's there's something incredible about going into competition knowing that there's no way that anybody else trained as hard or as good as you, as smart, right? So we're not talking about training quantitatively. We're talking about training qualitatively, right? Um... The confidence that comes out of knowing whether in any discipline that you're at, that you gave it your all. You know, I, when I work with someone, I say that, you know, one of my many filters is looking at someone in the eye and saying th- that working with me is is living as if you're training qualitatively as if in a world championship training camp. Um, qualitatively. But I look at them in the eye and some people you see a fear. You see the fear of exposure. Other people you see a lean in, an eagerness, a gameness, a hunger for what that exposure will lead to. Right? Those are two very, very different paths. Um, maintaining presence to, to that quality, right? Even after we've, we've assumed that we've got it nailed, right? You see this with people around presence, right? You see there's so much bullshit in the meditation world, for example. So much bullshit. Because people might have meditated wonderfully for four or five years or six years or eight years or ten years, but then they get ego involved with it. And then they're, they put together their schools and they're, you know, they're not embodying it anymore, right? And then it becomes hollow. And um, they've they kind of slipped from the philosopher to the philosophologist um, without even knowing that it happened. They weren't even present to the question. Firewalking process. 
Yeah, that's important. What is the firewalking process? This is new to me too. I'm not sure I've heard you discuss this. Yeah, this is something I've been really, for the last year and a half or so, developing intensely. I think it's been a core part of my process for a long time, but training people, I've been I've been on this really intense learning curve on how to work with people on this. So the, the, the core to the principle is that, that people tend to learn from their own experiences with much more potency than they learn from other people's experiences, right? And the firewalking process is, is that's what I call, that's, that's my term for a gateway to cultivating the ability to learn with the same physiological intensity from other people's experiences as, as we learn from our own. So for example, if you're a jiu-jitsu fighter and you slightly overextend your arm and you get armbarred, and let's say Munjals in the world championships, right? Your arm is being separated from your body, right? You're, you feel like your shoulder is disconnecting. Your arm is breaking. If you don't tap, you're going to break. So you have the com- combination. And often guys will fight it, right? They won't want to tap. It's the world. So they'll have the combination of of huge disappointment, all the the adrenal reactions to being caught and having being wounded, and maybe torn ligaments or tendons, right? Depending on how the injury sets in, or maybe a bone. And they will burn that lesson to themselves and they will not overextend their arm that way again, right? That's been burned in on an animalistic level. But if they watch somebody fighting and they watch them overextend and get caught in an arm, or that's just like nothing. That's an intellectual knowledge that, that has no impact on whether or not they'll overextend. But if we can cultivate the ability to learn from other people's errors or experiences with the same intensity as we can learn from our own, it's unbelievable how that can steepen the learning, learning curve. What would be an example of that beyond jiu-jitsu? Well, for example, a really interesting live example that I'm playing with um, today is that we, working actively with investors, um, is that you know we are set, a brilliant investor um, recently used the term um, the Pavlovian impact or the Pavlo, Pavlovian influences of growing up in a bull market, right? So most investors, most relatively young investors, grew up in a post 2008 world. So all of their subtle, you know, responses have come from growing up in a bull market. So for the most part, they've been, they've experienced pleasure when they put the foot on the gas and they've experienced pain when they've taken the foot off the gas. For the most part, it's oversimplified. Um, it's really interesting to sit down and think about all of the cognitive biases, right? all of the subtle associations that come with growing up in a bull market. Now, traditionally, what people will say is you have to live through certain business cycles. You have to, you have to, the school of hard knocks, right? We have to learn from the pain of the other side. But can you take a, rel- a highly talented young investor who has grown up in a bull market and give them the wisdom? The, the, if you think about the, the journey from pre-consciousness to post-consciousness competitor around a certain theme. Give them the wisdom of living through many market cycles when they haven't, right? So then you can deconstruct systematically what does a bear market look like? Now, I'm not sure if we're in the beginning of a bear market now, but let's just say that that we are we are maybe in the first or second inning of a bear market now. Maybe we're in the tail, like the eighth or ninth innings of a bull market. Maybe we're in the ninth inning of a bull market. And we're going to see some huge round of intervention and we're going to go into extra innings of a bull market, right? No one really knows. Maybe there's some other dynamic at play. Um, you know, even the great macroeconomic you know, economists don't know. But we, they have a sense through this deep study of either macroeconomics or valuation. Um, but we are at one point someday, relatively soon, we'll probably enter a bear market. So it's going to be very important, right? And so if you haven't lived through one, well, one thing you can do is you can deconstruct what a bear market looks like and you can have them firewalk it. And so what that means is, is suddenly all of the, 
Um, and a bear market doesn't just mean going down. It actually means the subtle undulation of going, it's often going down, you know, for three weeks and then a, a really steep two week rally and then going down again for three weeks and two week rally. So people often, even bear, people who, who are betting think the market will go down, get really hurt in bear markets, right? Because it's violent. It's, it, there's a volatility to volatility, it. Volatility. Yeah. Right. And so the question is, how can, in this case, a, an investor who's grown up in a post 2008 world, um, firewalk market cycles so that he can burn that wisdom into himself or herself. And then the, the question is how do you do this, right? And so there, a lot of the things that we discussed um, around around um, physiological awareness, right? Somatic awareness, cultivating the sensitivity to what's happening inside of us, right? What comes with that is the ability to switch state emotionally, adrenally. And so if we visualize something very painful to us, we can have the physio- if, if we visualize with tremendous potency, we can have a physiological response to that, right? True, even of exercise training, people who say take a ten minute meditation visualization session in lieu of oh, there we go. All right, that means we have to go pick up Jack from school. We have school. to go pick up Jack, but they, take get, a break they, and keep they get the benefits of the exercise in large part just from the visualization over ten minutes. But we have yes. to go grab Jack, and well, to be continued. To be continued. Awesome. <laughs> Okay, so we're back. We we're back. reclaimed the boy from school, <laughs> ate some Japanese food, talked about life, and now here we are for the continuation. Firewalking, visualization, we're going to talk about casts. Let's continue with firewalking. Yes. You were just bringing up the, um, the physical dynamics that are possible with intense visualization, right? I had this, this formative experience I, I wrote about years ago where I broke my hand seven weeks before a national championship when I was training in the Chinese martial arts, um, push hands. And I was in a cast for six weeks um, up until I think three days before the, the nationals. And the docs said I couldn't compete and everything because I'd be atrophied. But I, but I was committed to doing it. And it was really interesting because I was just doing all of my training one-handed and visualizing the weight work that I was doing on the one side, passing over to the other. The weight work, like weight work, resistance well, training. Yeah. I was doing some, I was, I was doing my martial arts training one-handed, which was fascinating on its own to just work on being able to do with one hand, what you can do with two. That was tremendous. But I was also visualizing the resistance training I was doing on one side, passing over to the other. And, um, but really intense visualization, not just like thinking it, but burning it in. It's kind of when I made my fire walking, the distinction between kind of, Thinking about intellectually, sort of trying to visualize it, and then or, or versus burning it in with every sort of sensory simulation. Yeah, like with your whole like spirit burning it in deeply. Um, and it was fascinating to see when, when I took off the cast, I had basically not atrophied, and I competed the next two, two days, three days later, and won. Um, the doctors, I mean, they were pretty surprised by it. A lot of Western <laughs> medicine is pretty <laughs> sure. surprised by. It. I mean, they're close-minded about these kinds of things. What? would you do to translate that to something less obviously physical? Like we were talking about training people who've never been through a bear market right. to have the wisdom uh, or the lessons learned of those who have been through. So pragmatically, how do you simulate that? Do you have them interview someone who's gone through it and then try to relive those stories through visualization or what would the, the process potentially look like? Yeah, so you just so cultivation of empathy to be able to do what you just described very deeply is one thing. To be able to you know to to live someone else's experience profoundly, 
Um, first of all, we have to really be clear about the distinction between intellectual knowledge and somatic knowledge, right? When we have having something burned in, there's an adrenal response, right? So there's a physiology to having an experience very intensely. We have to learn how to create that physiology, right? So how to undulate, so we can do biofeedback training, um, undulating between states of physiological coherence and states of extreme stress so that we, we build up the ability to, to kind of move between them at will. And then when we're studying, um, for example, the experience of somebody getting burned extremely intensely time and again in a bull market, I mean, in a bear market, um, during the volatility, the ups and downs of a bear market, right? You, you, can, you can look at it and it can feel like, um, you know, just like a chart. Or you can experience the anxiety that comes with it, um, the pain that comes with it, the, like the shattering of your previous conceptual scheme, right? You can almost, you can almost firewalk the experience of the Pavlov, Pavlovian influence of growing up in a bull market and then having that shattered. You could firewalk that shattering. And then open your mind to the pot, to the reality of the, the broader cyclicality over the long term. Um, and there's a lot of, I mean, in terms of how you do it, well, I mean, this is the, the foundation is in a lot of things we've been discussing, right? Intense meditation training, um, ways of becoming incre- increasingly attuned to these subtle ripples inside your body, stilling your waters, having a lifestyle which is less reactive, less input addicted, um, being really aware of how we fill space addictively in life. Um, whenever there's empty space, we just fill it as opposed to maintaining the emptiness. And the emptiness is where we have the clarity of mind and the, the perception of, of these little micro ripples inside of us. Yeah. Um, cultivating the ability to, to observe in us and in others, like the subtlest undulations of quality or of physiology. Well, you and I talk a lot about maintaining slack yeah. and trying to build slack into the system and how important that is. Yeah. And I, you know, I was told by someone I respect a lot recently, uh, find the silence because you have to listen from the silence. And that might sound very uh, vague, but I, I found that if you really meditate on it, I mean, it can apply to just about anything. I mean, if you really want to separate the signal from the noise, you need the space to do that. Right. It's such an important principle. All right, we're going to take a break. We have baby time. (laughs) Jack is up from his nap. Um. And we're back to your regular programming, Joshua. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about Slack while the Slack is expiring in the system here. (laughs) Very impassioned cries from upstairs. Yeah, our, our aim today was to do this in the morning while, my, while Jack was in school. Um, and the, the fortune intervened. Yes. Changed our plans. Yes. <laughs> you know, this, this principle of slack um, is, a, is, is so interesting. I mean, for me, a lot of it relates to the empty space for the learning process, right? Like in my, in my way of life, I'm, I mean, I've built a life around having empty space for the development of my ideas, for the creative process. And for the cultivation of a physiological state, which is receptive enough to, to attune, to tune in very, very deeply to people, right? To people who I work with. Um, and so like I can see how I could, I could triple the amount of people that I work with, um, very easily with the systems that I have. But my growth curve would get much, um, 
I mean, it, it, would, it would change fundamentally. Um, and my internal physiological training w- would, would take a hit, right? I wouldn't have enough time for meditation, for reflection afterwards, for developments of, of the, the kind of the thematic takeaways of every session that I have. Um, and the creative process, it's so easy to, 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 to drive for efficiency and take for granted, um, the really subtle internal work that it takes to, to play on that razor's edge. I think in part it comes back to the limiting of inputs and selective ignorance that you talked about, right? Because if you triple the number of clients you have in a high tech, uh, high tech and high touch business, you're going to have to juggle 17 chainsaws instead of two chainsaws. Right. And then I'm reacting. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, um, embodying the core principles that we're working on. And right. so much of, of, I find really high level training is kind of sort of somatic transmission. Mm-hmm. You're embodying a certain state and then you're, you're helping someone embody that state as well. Totally agreed. And I think that if you want a good example of that, just as a relatively new dog owner, as an adult, you can look at dogs or children who are fundamentally unblocked in that somatic read, reading ability. And, uh, you can see, just as you said, like with, as a parent transmits their state of being to their child, despite what, despite, or with the assistance of whatever they might say, uh, similarly, if you're interacting adult to adult, you need to sort of return to that state to be maximally effective in what you do in particular. Right. Right. And then when we're, when we're talking about sort of dancing on the razor's edge, right? So when you're, when you're in when you're moving up the growth curve in a certain discipline, there's a lot of things that you can do to reach the first, you know, 80th or 90th or 95th percentile of something. When you're talking about the last 0.001%, you're talking about this, these arenas where, where the greatest insight will be right next to the greatest blunder. And, and it's, you have to be able, willing to go just, just right on that razor's edge, right? As you think about like of the, I was having this, Great conversation with the sports psychologist Michael Gervais a couple of weeks ago, and he made, he had talked he used this language of thrusting into big waves, right? The experience he had to go into, like to, to push himself as a surfer to, to thrust into um, big waves. I love that. I love that expression, right? It's like, but of course, if you're thrusting into big waves, then you can easily push yourself into the wave you shouldn't take, right? So big wave surfers have to be able to, to navigate that just the f- most fine, finely tuned, um, in the moment, just intuitive decision-making process of whether the moment is just right or whether it's a moment that will kill you, right? And then if you're working with people as a coach or as a trainer, right, of people who are, who are navigating that terrain, you have to be in a state where you can navigate that terrain. You have to have an embodied state there. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a mistake that a lot of people make in everything that they do. They just scale. They scale and dilute quality. Um, and when they dilute quality, you lose the ability to successfully navigate the razor's edge. And then by definition, you're you're probably more destructive than you are product than you are helpful. And, and so like when, when I think about training people who are in that place, it's like 99.9% listening. And ideally you can, you can make the most potent suggestions with the lightest touch feasible. So the notes, I took some notes beforehand here or borrowed some notes beforehand. <laughs> and one of them touches on the principle of scarcity in a, habit creation, B, the learning process, C, the creative process. I don't know if we'll have time to get all of these right now, but could you just elaborate on the, the principle of scarcity? So 
if we think about the like the idea of subtraction or essentialism or scarcity, right? Um, I mean, you, 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 frankly, are as good as it gets, in my opinion, at at harnessing the principle of scarcity, right? In your learning process, learning how to deconstruct something, focusing on what's absolutely most essential, right? And zone in on it, right? As opposed to just throwing huge amounts of resources at things. And um, just having a, like a diluted quality of approach. Most people, when they when they become successful, they have the opportunity to have more resources, and they keep on layering more and more resources on things. And so they're not very potent in how they go about things. If you if you cut those resources down ninety nine percent, then you find yourself just zoning in on what's most essential. And then if you can learn to add resources incrementally, maintaining that potency, it's incredible what you can do. But it takes a lot of discipline to maintain that principle of scarcity. So in habit creation, taking on um, the right amount, not too much. Not too little, but not too much. People tend to think about layering on, you know, they get excited when they realize, if I go through a diagnostic process with something, we, re- we realize that there's 10 areas they could take on. They want to take on, on all of them at once, right? You can really take on one or two things at once. Um, ideally, one or one theme, with, and you take on two or three manifestations of that theme to burn that theme on, and you keep on layering, right? Um, in the creative process, I mean, you talk about Limiting inputs, right? We've been talking about limiting positive inputs. constraints, yeah, right. Positive constraints. I mean, you could you, listen. Me speaking about this principle to you. I mean, you, you embody this principle profoundly. What are your thoughts on it? Well, there are a few things. I, I mean, just to maybe add a couple of anecdotes to what you just said. The first thing that came to mind was uh, a quote, and I'm going to butcher this, but it's from uh, Jack Ma of Alibaba who said, you know, in the beginning we had an advantage. We had no experience, no business plan and no money. So it forced us to make all of our decisions very carefully. And I do think that people tend to, and I'm also borrowing this, but overestimate what they can accomplish in a week and underestimate what they can accomplish in a year, which leads to theoretically appealing decisions, like trying to adopt 10 new behaviors at once that are, kind of uh, hour-wise and year-foolish, right? <laughs> in the sense that they're, they're doomed to fail from the outset in many respects. And the to, to your point also about scaling, uh, I, you know, I have friends who call this the S-word because it's romanticized, kind of uh, worshipped notion in Silicon Valley. Scale, scale, scale. Got to be bigger. Hire more people. Ship more product. And if you are looking to kind of optimize your craft, your art, that may or may not be the right path to doing that. And to my mind, you know, you can look at exemplars or you can look at examples of people who have scaled, who are still critics of scaling in the sense that uh, Bill Gates, I believe said, you know, if you add people to an inefficient process, it just makes the problem worse. You have to add people to an efficient process. And, uh, to that end, like whether you are looking to build a, for instance, lifestyle business, like a healthy cash flow based business that represents in some way your craft. Let's just say you make, uh, this is a real example, actually, like 20 customized rifles a year. That's all you do. And you sell to the top, like 0.001% of marksmen's marksmen in the United States, you never ship more than that. (laughs) That's the constraint that you apply. Whether you're trying to do that or build Microsoft, that lesson can apply, right? Uh, Whether it's adding one person or adding the next thousand people. 
So for me, it's, I think it's very easy to create a false dichotomy in your mind when you look at, say, a small scale, small scale craftsman who's perhaps like making, uh, let's just say, oil paintings in, in rural Alaska versus a startup in Silicon Valley with a thousand employees and think of them as totally different. But in fact, if you look at the, the top performers in either environment, they'll have a lot in common with each other. And I think one of those commonalities is applying a lot of positive constraints, even when you have an embarrassment of resources available. If we think about this in terms of the creative process, you know, maybe one of the most important things to train is the ability to ask the right question, to know where to look, right? And if you look at people in in most creative fields who are extremely high level versus incrementally lower fields, it's it's knowing what the most critical area is for um, for thinking. Let's pause for two minutes and then we'll continue. I kind of want Jack say, to say hi to everybody. What do you say? I Jack, want you. Jack's saying hi to everybody. He's saying <laughs> we're gonna get Jack playing with something and then we're gonna finish up. Okay, to be continued. Okay, siamo tornati. Here we are. We have Dinosaur Train playing for the little one. Dinosaur Train creators. That one's on me. <laughs> and Josh has a continuation. Yeah, thinking about this principle of of scarcity, um, one of the the ways that I I have myself trained at this um, in the creative process or harness the principle of scarcity is is and I have everyone who I work with li- live in this routine is forcing yourself to end of each day think about what the most important question is. Um, and what you're working. We discussed this last time. Um, it's really interesting because you're studying complexity all the time. And if you're a really high level thinker, you're slicing through most of it like butter. But then there's usually one or two or three areas of stuckness. And most people I find tend to live in the creative process by kind of surfacing, deciding where they want to go, putting their head down and just grinding their way toward it and then surfacing later on. They don't surface enough to reflect on what's the most potent direction to go. You think about like the human versus the computer playing chess. 10 years ago, now the computers are getting really good at knowing where to look. But, but, you know, 10 years ago, the, the human knew that one of these two or three directions was the right essential direction. Intuitively, we sense that, right? And we cultivate the ability to know where to look. The computer had to look at everything. If we're looking at everything, then we're just operating like really, really bad computers. <laughs> but if we cultivate the ability to ask the most potent question, um, systematically, right? So how do we do this? Well, we have a routine where we end each workday thinking, what's the most important question? Um, in what I'm doing right now, pose the question for the, to the unconscious and wake up first thing in the morning and brainstorm on it. Do you have them pose it again? No. Actually, I think it's pretty important not to do that because then we're kind of consciously ruminating on it. I have them, uh, hopefully they haven't thought about it for a few hours before they go to bed. This is something that Hemingway wrote about in his, in his writing process really beautifully. Um, the Yeah, Hemingway would stop writing mid-sentence right. and provide a foothold for continuing the next day right which we could also look at from the framing of that internal versus external framing right if you're if you're kind of held by a sense of guilt whenever you're not working then you're going to feel like you have to write everything you have to write but if you're nurturing from the inside out your creative process you're going to be comfortable stopping with a sense of direction even when you're mid-sentence or mid-paragraph right when i've talked to people who have started journaling successfully for the first time the most consistent pattern that i see is i write less than i feel i can Hmm. each day yeah they're they're never pushing to max capacity or feeling like they're pushing to max they they always write less than they feel they should write right that's very interesting that's very interesting 
And if we think about taking this and then and then turning it into a systematic training of the ability to be potent in the creative process, if we're if we're reflecting, uh, if we're working on a given project and we're reflecting on what's the most important question here, and we're journaling on it in the brain in the brainstorm in the morning, we're doing a lot of things. You know, we're opening the channel systematically between the conscious and the unconscious mind. We're waking up in the mor- in the morning and beginning our day proactively. All of these things which we discussed um, in the past. But then if you sit back after, say, a month, and you look back at your, say, three or four or five journals, brainstorms, Q&As, or on a given subject, and you think about, okay, so in the moment, this is what I thought was most potent. But now I realize this, in fact, would have been most potent. What's the gap? Deconstruct the gap between your understanding then, your understanding now, and then design your training process around um, deconstructing that gap, right, Under, and, and training at what that gap revealed, it's a really powerful way for individuals. Right. What assumptions underlied that gap, right? The creation of that gap or that blind spot. That or... misperception about what was most important. Right. Right. And so you're training yourself day in and day out like water, right? To um, be an increasingly potent thinker. And 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 that this is manifesting scarcity and that we are forcing ourselves, no matter how many resources we have, to think about what is the most important question and what I'm working on mm-hmm. right now. Do you journal every day yes when do you journal i journal um well i journal throughout so i it's like i'll wake up in the morning um meditate take a take a cold then hot cold undulation shower and then um meditate and then i will journal um i've had periods where i've just moved right especially when i was working lucid dream where i'd move straight from sleep into journaling but that's my rhythm today um, and then when I have insights throughout the day, I'll do quick journals about them. Um, and then after I have sessions with clients, I'll do a journaling session on the most important takeaways. Do you do that in a notebook or do you do it digitally? I do it on Evernote and then I tag everything thematically, which mm-hmm. is hugely important for me. I have all of my journals and all of the resources, um, every, you know, that I find valuable tagged thematically and through habits, um, in the language of my training process. And so this is incredibly powerful for, being able to give people resources for me reviewing the ideas without having recency bias impede um, you know, how I communicate. Can you say that one more time? Give. So if I have a client who I think has to work on a certain theme and I want to give them resources they can read on it, I can just click on you know the tag on Evernote and all of the resources, things that I've written and things that I've read circling that theme are right there. Got it. And it's also really powerful because, you know, it's really hard to overcome recency I bias. I see without recency bias, right, meaning like the primacy and recency effect. So you're recalling what it is you read most recently, not necessarily the best resource. Right. Not And not necessarily the foundation of my relationship to the to to the theme. Understood. And you want to communicate it from the, you know, someone's learned from the foundation up. Mm-hmm. So really powerful. The tagging, I mean, I find on, I'm sure Evernote isn't the, I'm not a big tech wizard, as you know, but <laughs> just, just to put this in perspective. So we were looking for, well, we, I'm using the Royal we, Josh was looking for dinosaur train for like 10 minutes. And then he's like, you know what? I think I'm going to search this thing. And I was like, and, and you say you're not good at tech. <laughs> it was a good showing. No, I was, Thanks, a, man. that was a big discovery. Um, <laughs> And then Jack's like, there's dinosaur train. <laughs> Amazing how this search function works. Uh, should we talk about thematic interconnectedness? Yes, let's talk about it. I'd love to talk about it in the context of education a little bit. Um, this is one of the, I mean, thematic interconnectedness is one of, the, maybe that's the essence of my relationship to <laughs> to the world or beyond. Um, I think it's, I mean, you and I have, as in our eccentric conversations, 
all over the world on surfboards and wherever else. This has been a big topic for us, right? Yeah. Constant topic. In various states. Um, and it's been a huge part of how I've approached learning, you know, from my foundation in, in looking at the relationships between chess and life, learning about life through chess, then in transferring level over from chess into the martial arts, and then first Chinese martial arts, then into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And then when I work with people... Um, it's really how I learn and it's how I've found it's really powerful to help people amplify their growth curves, to teach them to be able to learn the many from the few or from the one, right? Learn the macro from the micro, um, break down the boundaries between disparate pursuits or disparate parts of life, uh, between the personal, the professional, the technical and the psychological, right? Um, and if we have an experience where, you know, we're on surfboards and we have some little, you know, thematic breakthrough and we can apply it to every other aspect of our life it's really interesting what can happen because we're pretty well calloused over in our areas of strength but in areas where we're like less advanced we, we can be more raw and we might we're more, we're more conducive to breakthrough sometimes oh 100 percent. i mean you can see things with beginner's mind because you have no other choice <laughs> right <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to try to simulate beginner's mind because you are a beginner it's like the right. race to the bottom right uh, right. experience. If, so for those who are wondering what the hell that means, uh, the race to the bottom is an expression that Eric, uh, of PaddleWoo, our surf, uh, paddle surfing instructor uses to refer to constantly dropping in board size, uh, often measured in liters for buoyancy purposes. And Josh and I, and everyone who is there really very quickly realized that you are to use your expression, kind of dancing the razor's edge and trying to find a balance between the race to the bottom, but also maintaining motivation. So you're not just slipping on banana peels for five hours straight. <laughs> and to what extent do you focus on the board size and the race to the bottom versus, which gives you more uh, maneuverability in surfing versus actually working on say the footwork and the other technical aspects of the game on a board that you can manage. Um, and it's very interesting to think about this theme of the race to the bottom combined with this other wonderful principle that I, I, that Eric um, and that we were all talking about with Eric, um, which is which is swap the swapping of boards between. So he had these camps where he had, I think the eighteen top stand up paddle surfers in the world together with him, all riding these ridiculously small boards that are deep underwater when you're standing on them, and, and I mean it's incredibly hard to balance in these things. So they've internalized this race to the bottom theme so deeply. Um, which we are working on. <laughs> and, um, and then they're also, they had this experience where they were all together and initially that was sort of competitive, but then it became much more collaborative and they were just sharing ideas and then they began to swap boards and they began to have this interesting experience where, you know, every surfboard kind of carves its own lines, right? There's the practitioner who carves his lines, but then there's also the board that has, you know, a unique rocker will find new, li new lines in the wave. And what these guys would find is that if they swap boards, they could see new lines in the wave because if they listen to the board, some guys would, would swap boards and try to force the new board to, to carve their lines. Others would sort of be open to what this new board could do. And then th they would learn from it. And then they'd go back to their board and their minds would open up. They, so they were, that's another way of thinking about this idea of the beginner's mind, right? The new board forced them help them see new lines if they're open-minded enough, mm -hmm. right? So anyway, go, but this is the kind of, this is an example of thematic interconnectedness, right? So when I came back from that, this was our last, our previous um, trip where we were talking about the swapping boards theme and I came back and I was red hot on fire with how to apply this theme in the investment process, 
with my guys, right? So you have these teams that are so private and that are so magnificent at what they do. But if you could get teams to mix, to share ideas with a sense of abundance, right? Um, like, for example, if a world-class portfolio manager could swap analysts with another PM for um, a week or two or three, would it be interesting? If they were both, like, open, if they were truly, everyone was sharing openly, you'd see new, you'd be doing equivalent swapping boards, seeing new lines, right? It's forcing a beginner's mind, but forcing a beginner's mind not only with an open-mindedness, but also... It, tapping somebody who is truly exceptional at a very different style of what you do, mm-hmm. right? So there's an example of just having experience in surfing and applying it to something else, right? And converting it potentially into a simple question, right? Like where can where can I swap boards, right? Right, it right. Could be something that that is used for fodder for people listening in a journaling exercise, right? right. Wake up, have your coffee, or I was going to say have your coffee, then meditate. Probably not the right order. Meditate, <laughs> have your coffee, sit down, you know, drop that question at the top and just work. And I swap boards. Beautiful. Exactly. That, that's, a, that's a magnificent journaling, like brainstorm question to riff on. I love it. I love it. So how do you apply that to education? So this thematic interconnectedness, I mean, the way, the way I don't think that we can do much more important work with children than um, help them love learning help them learn to bring out the essence of who they are in the learning process, right? So the, to express the core of who they are through learning, which obviously will help them love learning, and then help them discover thematic interconnectedness, how um, the world is interconnected via principles, themes. People are, are really um, siloed right now. People think about disciplines in, in an increasingly data-driven um segregated way a segregated way in a closed-minded way and it's kind of heartbreaking and so you know i have this nonprofit i've been running for a lot of years um and a huge amount of what we do so we all of our work is in education we've got hundreds of programs around the world mostly in the u.s but, but international as well the art of learning project.org is our is our website um and the, the programs that are most exciting to me are the ones where we really are systematically working with schools to help children experience thematic interconnectedness. And so the way we'll do this, for example, is that we'll be working with five teachers in um, five different subject matters, four or five or six or three, whatever the number is, in in, in the same age group. What are you smiling at, man? <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> it was a great look on your face. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. No, <laughs> sorry, guys. I was just looking at the URL. So it's theartoflearningproject.org. And I was laughing because I remembered when we were filming the TV show and we were walking up the stairs to the jiu-jitsu, you know, to the Marcel uh, Garcia gym, <laughs> and you kept on saying, towel this, towel that. And I thought you were saying towel, T-O-W-E-L. And I'm like, what the fuck is towel? And you're like, it's my goddamn book. And you got all upset. I'm like, oh, the art of learning. I'm like, how did you expect me to piece that together? Anyway, that's why I was smirking. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah. now I know the acronym and I, okay, well, so I won't, I I won't anger Josh any further. You didn't anger me. I know. I'm just fucking with you. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the, the, um, I don't remember that conversation. I'm trying to, <laughs> that. it was great. Towel, towel, towel for like five flights of stairs. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, my bad. So the way that we, we do this is that we have, for example, five, you know, sub teachers in different subject matters working uh, with our, with, with, my team to weave the same principle of learning into, for example, math, English, history, social studies, 
volleyball, soccer at the same time. And so you'll have kids who are studying their subject matter, but they're, they're studying also the way a certain principle of learning or the creative process of performance psychology manifests in each of these disciplines at the same time. And so they're, they're by definition breaking down the walls between these different pursuits. And it's a really interesting systematic way of doing this, right? So they'll be studying the same principle in math and they move to the next subject and they're, 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 they're experiencing it through another lens and then through another lens and they're experiencing it in sport. Are these borrowed from the art of learning book in so much as you're talking about smaller and smaller circles or you're starting, you're talking about learning the macro from the micro, et cetera. Yes. These- yeah. The, the root of these are in, are in core themes of learning, creativity and performance psychology that I wrote about in my book and that I've developed since. Yeah, absolutely. And we've spoken about a lot of them together. Yeah. Um, and so it's a kind of a combination of individualized self-expression. Um, well, every, a lot of these themes that we've been discussing today and, and, and last time. It's- and so th- can people learn more about this at theartoflearningproject.org? They can. Um, so I, I, we invite every, everybody, please come check out the site. We've got some really wonderful programs around the world, and it's, it's a good timing for this right now because I'd love it if um, any educators out there – we're on the, on the verge of, of, of launching um, about 10 really high-level programs is what we want to launch, all thematically driven right now in the next um, – in the next – preparing them in the next months. And so – Anyone who is in the educational world who'd love to like to touch base with us about um, applying for this kind of program, Katie um, on my team is can be reached at Katie K A T Y at jwfoundation.com. Um, JW Foundation is the name of my nonprofit that that um, houses the Art of Learning Project. So Katie at at jwfoundation.com. Katie K A T Y at JW is in Joshua Waitzkin Foundation.com. Yes. Um, and and she works what type with, of educators should check this out and email her teachers it, teachers or um people running schools or school systems any minimum number of students or any other parameters well the essence of these of these programs would be would be a school system that's open minded around for example engaging like i described teachers in different disciplines working at the same time in a collaborative way um so that the kids can be embodying the same principle in, in multiple disciplines at the same time. I mean, that's the essence of it. So it's a bit of a coordinated program. We've had wonderful success doing this. And it's what really excites me in, when I think about education, how to build systematic training in creativity through thematic interconnectedness into the way kids learn these days. Because kids get so excited when they can see connections. I mean, this is a big part of what I'm experiencing as a dad with Jack, is how red hot he gets when he can learn something and then apply it to many other things. And this is a core part of, of my approach to learning. I think it's been a, I mean, it's maybe my biggest strength is the ability to find hidden harmonies between disparate parts of life. Seemingly disparate. Yeah. Seemingly. Right. Well, Josh, Beautiful. this is, uh, this is always so much fun <laughs> to drag you kicking and screaming out of your cage. You did it. <laughs> cage. Or, or cave. <laughs> I like, and, cave, I like cave more. I like cave more. I yeah. don't know why I was thinking cage. <laughs> I, mean, I guess I guess that's just my inner primate coming out. But the uh, people have asked me often about education following my TED talk, where at the end I close out talking about tackling different facets of education, and I feel like your approach and principle based lens through which you can not only spot, but teach interconnectedness is just so incredibly valuable. Like you said, in an educational system where fields are increasingly siloed 
and viewed as separate and you have political turf wars between departments and whatnot, which only exacerbates that problem. And I feel like this is a massively powerful step in the right direction. So number one, thank you for that. And number two, educators listening to this, or if you're just curious to check it out and might be able to help in some way, theartoflearningproject.org. And then uh, if you get a taste of that and it seems compelling and you want to try to apply or jump into the fray, then katie, K-A-T-Y, at jwfoundation.com. Dot org. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, my bad. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Theartoflearningproject.org. And I'll put this in the show notes for everybody listening. These will be, and many of other, uh, many of the other things that we mentioned will be in the show notes at uh, fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. But Josh, uh, I would usually ask where can people find you online, but they can't find you. Can't find me. <laughs> so I won't ask that. Is there anything that you would like people to, besides visiting the resources we just mentioned, anything that you'd like people to take away, consider, do, any action, anything that comes to mind you'd like people to to walk away with, just as a closing comment or question? That's a big question. Yes, absolutely. It's funny, as I, as I sit with this now, for so many years, my primary identity was as a, a fighter, a competitor. And I've, I've transitioned in recent years and, and I find my, my primary identity now is I mean, self-identity. The way I, I've, I experience myself is as a nurturer of, of people. Um, my family, um, the people I work very closely with and, um, children as I work more broadly in education. And when I think about it through the context of, of nurturing people and nurturing ourselves, I think that, that we're living in a world of so much noise and so much distraction and of the space being constantly filled that, that it's rather remarkable what can happen if we cultivate a mindfulness, a stillness of the waters uh, as a way of life. And we find the beauty in, in that. There's so much beauty that can come from silence. Um, we can learn so much by, by feeling the inner ripples of our internal experience. Um, and as parents embodying what we want our children to embody, living it, right? Walking the talk, putting away our phones, um, living a, a life of deep presence with our, with our children, with our students, with the people we work with, cultivating empathy, cultivating compassion. Um, it scares the hell out of me how, how powerfully I see the world moving in another direction from this. And there's so much that we can, that we can learn from, from the speed of what computers can do, of where AI is headed, of, of what big data can reveal. It's thrilling to me, um, as long as we, we stay in touch with the, the essential parts of our humanity. Um, and when I experience what happens working with people, with adults or with children, when we're just completely present and we cultivate that presence as a way of life, it's incredible what can happen between people. And when I experience the scars in children that I see everywhere that come from the anxiety that comes from the lack of attachment, secure attachment, the lack of the attunement of the parent, the lack of the embodiment of the parent or the teacher and these things that are spoken about, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm really, really old school, but there's something about, about the cultivation of deep presence and qualities of way of life, which just rings all through me. And honestly, the other thing I'll say is that after having the experience I had a few months ago, coming as close as you can come to dying, um, 
as you can, basically. I mean, first of all, on a tactical level, please, you know, if, if anyone's experimenting with different forms of breath hold work, like the Wim Hof method, which I think is very interesting and quite powerful, please don't do it in any water, even an inch of water. Because if you go out, um, you don't want to be in water. Um, and then... I, I, I should say, if you practice this stuff enough and you're a type A personality, you are going to go out. Yeah. And there's, there's a, it's, it's not just a high probability, it's almost a certainty that you're going to go out. And to think otherwise is really courting disaster. So do not do it in or near water. Yeah. And when we talk about firewalking, right? About living, learning from other people's experiences with the same physiological intensity that you can learn from your own. There's something about when you, when you come, like when you go over that edge, over that cliff, if I could take the experience of love, gratitude, and beauty that I've been living with ever since I had that experience, and I could give it to my brothers and sisters, you know, holy smokes. I mean, what a beautiful thing. I, um, and so if there's any way that we can, we, we can just live with that, with that deep sense of beauty. Oh, such a rich place. To find the stillness, to cultivate, not just find, but create that stillness and practice, like you said, the the calming of the waters, I think is, it's underestimated because of its perceived simplicity. And uh, just as not all things that are simple are easy, uh, not all things that are simple are low in value, right? sometimes what's right in front of you within grasp that is most important to grasp onto and make use of. Yeah. It doesn't have to be extremely esoteric. And it's so easy to think we've got it nailed, you know, like we can meditate for 15 years and think we've got presence nailed and then we stop meditating and then six months pass and we're distracted. You know, it, it's, it's just, a, it's, there's a constancy to it, right? Yeah. And a presence to the sense of the real sense of danger that it can slip. And Speaking for me personally, it's also building it in as a habit, just like brushing your teeth, for those people who brush their teeth, <laughs> uh, in so much as, for me, and I'm, I know this is true for, for many of my friends, you can't, it, meditation doesn't really work well as a batched process. In other words, like meditating 10 minutes a day for 10 days is much more valuable than meditating once in 10 days for 100 minutes. And for most people, it'd be less painful too. Uh, once you get into that habit, and it becomes a ingrained part of your being and your practice. You will see the value, particularly once you have a critical mass of. For me, it's typically five to seven days, and then I'm just mm. like, I cannot believe I wasn't doing this. <laughs> I can't believe I stopped for four weeks or whatever it is. <laughs> it's incredibly valuable. And uh, brother Josh, thanks, brother. This was a blast, man. Thanks, buddy. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share 
the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. 